0: So you know, it's no secret that everyone on some level wants to be successful, right? It's the reason that society is so fascinated by uh, wealth and achievement, and even if we don't feel like we have a piece of it just yet, we like to at least be adjacent to it, right? It's why successful people intrigue us so much. Uh, it's why we read with great interest about the lives of the rich and famous, and we uh, we ogle their you know palatial mansions and their uh, flashy automobiles and their fashion choices and all those glossy magazines displayed at the at the grocery store checkout counter, right? It's because something inside of us likes to be associated with success. And that, that maybe if we're somehow uh, close to successful people and we emulate their style, some of that success might rub off on us. That's why we like it when our sports teams are champions. amen sister and 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 when our candidates get into office and when our olympians win gold medals because we want to back a winner and that inclination is nothing new because in our gospel lesson for this morning we're going to hear the story of two of jesus disciples the brothers james and john who who thought they were backing a winner and they wanted to see just how far his coattails could take them and so open your bibles if you will to mark chapter 10 and uh, I hope you have in your own Bibles in front of you. It's awesome that it's on the screen here, but I don't want that to become a crutch. Because it's great that it's in, it's in the Bible on the screen, but it's even better that it's in the one in front of you. So I'm going to be reading Mark chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 32 through verse 45. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the true and living God. Mark tells us, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, "Teacher, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you." And he said to them, "What do you want me to do for you?" And they said to him, "Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory." And Jesus said to them, "You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized?" And they said to him, "We are able." And Jesus said to them, "The cup." That I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And brothers and sisters, that's the word of the Lord to us today. And let's pray. God our Father, uh, we thank you so much for this opportunity to uh, just have these brief moments to read your word and... Uh, we ask, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, it would be expounded now that uh, that my opinions would move out of the way and your Holy Spirit would speak to your people, uh, because we want to see Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. So if you remember, you know, we're going in the lectionary through the Gospel of Mark, and James and John had been following Jesus since he'd come on the scene in Galilee. And they'd witnessed him uh, say and do some pretty extraordinary things, right? as he preached the good news of the kingdom and now after like something like two and a half years or two years of traveling around with him they sort of come to the realization that they had effectively left everything in terms of security and success behind to follow him and that their whole lives now were tied to the success of his mission and so one day James and John come to Jesus with a request and You might have noticed that they kind of approach him in a kind of peculiar way, right? Uh, They say to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And right away, you you don't even have to have the omniscience of Jesus to know that there's something fishy going on here, right? As these guys basically ask Jesus to sign a blank check for them. And notice how Jesus answers, right? He doesn't make any promises, but rather he he cuts through the, the baloney and the game playing as it were. And he gets right to the point and he says to them, What do you want me to do for you? And so James and John finally spit out what they wanted. They said, grant to us one to sit at your right and one to sit at your left in glory. Pretty bold request, right? Uh, Not to mention an insensitive one uh, as the naked ambition of James and John are are laid right out for everybody to see. Even though Jesus had just barely finished describing to them his eminent demise. But James and John didn't get it, did they? Uh, And this is a repeated pattern, right? Because even though Jesus had taught them otherwise, the disciples still continually got caught up in the wrong concept of Messiah. Uh, They still see Jesus in that traditional messianic role as destined to be a winner. uh, As someone on his way up in the world, and, and they're hoping that he'll bring them along for the ride. And give them a couple of choice positions of power and prestige in the kingdom and hey, after all, don't don't James and John deserve a little payback?? Right? I mean, didn't they give up everything to follow Jesus? why Why wouldn't they expect a little something in return? Right? When the Messiah comes out on top, because you see, they're counting on their guy being a winner, and and after all, hey, this promised to be their golden ticket to the top. But Jesus tells them, you do not know what you're asking. And basically, Jesus is saying that his disciples don't have a clue yet who he is or what his whole mission is about. Because, brothers and sisters, it was not about following a king to a castle, but rather following a beaten man to the disgrace of the cross. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we're able But Jesus already knew that time and circumstance would prove otherwise. And that time and that circumstance would come later in the dark night of Gethsemane. And Mark actually records that for us. Uh, If you're following along in your own Bible, flip ahead to chapter 14. Right after the story of the Last Supper. So this is chapter uh, 14, verse uh, 26. And they sang a hymn, went out to the Mount of Olives... And on the way, Jesus told them, uh, all of you will desert desert me. For the scripture says, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised from the dead, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. And jump down to verse 31. Uh, No, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. And they went to the olive grove called Gethsemane and Jesus said, uh, sit here while I go and pray. And he took Peter and James and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. And he told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and fell to the ground. <clears throat> he prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried, everything is possible. For you, please take this cup of suffering away from me. And yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before and when he returned to them again he found them sleeping uh, for they couldn't keep their eyes open and they didn't know what to say and when he returned to them the third time he said go ahead and sleep have your rest but no the hour has come the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners so you have to kind of use your sacred imagination I call it picture the scene right Jesus and his disciples have just left the upper room where they had just shared their last supper and and they headed to the outskirts of the city right and since it was Passover season the full moon would have lit up the whole landscape as they headed out past the temple complex and and down into the Kidron Valley and when they got down the the slope of that steep bank to the bottom uh, they had a brook to cross a brook that Uh, incidentally caught the runoff water from the temple courts where the priests would have just finished up the last of their work and in rinsing away the remnants from the the slaying and the sacrificing uh, of what Josephus tells us was probably about a quarter of a million lambs so this particular night the bank would have been pretty slick the water would have flowed red with the blood of those paschal offerings and you know with such a visceral display Jesus he couldn't help but think how his own blood was about to be poured out on the ground before another day ended. And so when they make it to the far side of the brook near the foot of the mountain there's an olive grove called Gethsemane. Uh, it's a commercial spot actually, it's a, it's a business operation where during the day uh, lamp oil was extracted from olives by means of a, of a large stone wheel whose weight pressed down on the ripe fruit. And then the, the crushed olive pulp then was scooped into these wicker baskets uh, where only the purest and lightest weight of the oil would slip through the canes of the basket into a stone collecting bag. where, Where later it would become fuel for the giant menorah in the temple. But Jesus wasn't coming in the daytime, was he? He was coming at night when the place was deserted and quiet and dark. And because it was so out of the way of the main city, it was a place it was common for our Lord to go away and pray. In fact, Jesus and his disciples frequently went there when they came to Jerusalem. But you know, tonight would be very different from those nights because in, in this spot that had been set aside for the business of of pressing out this precious oil from the olive fruit, the Lord of life was about to be pressed, wasn't he? And pressed hard. He was about to be weighed Down with the heaviness that he had warned James and John that they weren't ready to swallow. Because brothers and sisters in the garden tonight, a tremendous struggle lay ahead of our Lord, a struggle to bear the baptism and drink the cup that he had spoken so plainly to his men about back on that road to Jerusalem. And that now lay directly ahead of him as he began the process of preparing himself physically and emotionally and spiritually to be literally crushed like so much ripe fruit so that later, three days later that is, he would shine the light of God's perfect love and forgiveness, not just within the little confines of the Jewish temple, but so he could be the light of the whole world. And that process started out with prayer. Jesus found a quiet spot. He prayed for himself, prayed for his disciples. He prayed for you and me too. And he asked Peter and James and John to keep watch with him and to, to pray too. But these fellows who, who wanted to be Jesus' right and left-hand men uh, and who swore they would be right beside him every step of the way, they were just a little too drowsy from the big meal they had just enjoyed earlier. And so Jesus prayed on alone, repeating the same request essentially three times. He said, My Father, if it's impossible, may this cup be taken away from me. Yet yeah, not, not what I will, but what you will. And they said, Father, let this cup pass from me. A little later, Jesus prays, my Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And that cup, brothers and sisters, which Christ referred, was the cup of anguish that Jesus was about to endure, the anguish of physical torment. And the anguish of mental torment. And the anguish of the righteous wrath of Almighty God. Do you suppose James and John still want to sip from it now? I didn't think so either. Uh, Because firstly, as I said, that cup holds the anguish of physical torment. And I I, I just have to be sure uh, in my mind that physical torment weighed so heavily on Jesus' mind that night. He'd already told his disciples on a few occasions he was going to die soon and... And now it's just a few hours, right? In just a few hours, everything that he had said would happen was about to happen. And I'm sure the pain of knowing that he was going to be beaten weighed heavily on him, knowing that he was going to be flogged repeatedly as the, the flesh of his back was ripped and torn into by the leather straps of a whip that was embedded with pieces of bone and shards of glass. Knowing that he would be bloodied by the armor-clad fist of a Roman to his face, knowing he'd feel the searing pain of the crown of thorns, and, and beyond all of that, of course, the horror of the anticipation of dying on a cross. But knowing that after being beaten nearly to death, he would have to drag that Roman beam to Golgotha, and and that he'd be too weak from the beatings, that he couldn't make it there without help. When he finally arrived, knowing he'd be thrown on the cross and nailed to it with nails through his wrists and his feet and, and where he knew he'd be left to die from asphyxiation of his lungs uh, die slowly as he collapsed under his own body weight on his lungs but there was more there was much more going on in the crucifixion of Jesus than just physical torment there was the anguish of mental torment And I think for all of us, if we're honest, um, we we often feel a great sense of regret for things we've done wrong in the past, right? I know, at least I do. But brothers and sisters, that's nothing compared with the mental torment of having the sins of the world placed on me. I, I can't even fathom the mental torment that that would cause, because Jesus, as the Son of God, as God incarnate, hates sin with the entirety of his being. And now he'd have to endure the psychological pain and anguish it would come from the guilt of every sin that would ever be forgiven, being placed on him. Think about that for a moment, right? Every every lie, every every theft, every murder, every other sin that we could name that would ever be forgiven was placed on our Christ. And, and I've said this before, not just like something essentially separate from him, but the Bible says within him because it was inside that cup. The cup of the guilt uh, of all of that would be almost too much for him to bear. So, yes, there's the physical torment that Jesus was going through and and, and anticipating uh, that had to be tremendous. But the torment of being and bearing the guilt and shame of so many people was far greater as a weight on him. And the anguish of the guilt. was a tremendous load for Jesus to bear, but I don't really believe that it was the physical or the mental torment that had Jesus pleading with the Father at Gethsemane because there was also the anguish of abandonment. One of Jesus' disciples had already abandoned him, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, right? And remember, he knew it was happening because he'd already sent Judas away saying, what you're going to do, do quickly. So that first bit of the abandonment Had already begun. And as time moved on. Then Peter. Right? Who was one of his closest friends. Would deny three times even knowing Jesus. So so emphatically in one of those denials. That he capped it off with a curse. And so already the list of things inside that cup. Seems to be getting enormous doesn't it? The the, the physical anguish. The the mental anguish. The abandonment. And yet brothers and sisters. uh, There was more because. To top it all off, that cup contained the undiluted anguish of bearing the wrath of Almighty God, which I, I believe weighed upon Jesus the most during his prayer. And, brothers and sisters, I believe it's here that we find the answer to why he was under so much stress that Dr. Luke had told us his capillaries burst and he bled drops of blood. See, it was the cup of God's wrath that Jesus would have to drink to its fullest. It's the cup of God's wrath. That Jesus prayed, uh, he wouldn't have to drink, but it would bring him more pain and fear and anguish and abandonment. But on top of all that, it would bring about his actual separation from God the Father for the first time in all of eternity. And brothers and sisters, that's the very definition of hell. That's the reason the Apostles' Creed, we repeat every week, has that line, Jesus descended into hell. Because it was at that moment, with the tremendous weight of God's wrath barreling toward him, that Jesus said, though nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. It was was the last thing he wanted to do, but he did it. And he drank that cup that James and John only thought that they could share. He drank it to the last. Charles Spurgeon said of it, all hell was diluted into that cup of which our God and Savior Jesus Christ was made to drink. And yet Jesus submitted completely, even though he could have escaped it at any moment. Remember, the Bible says even though he could have called 10,000 angels, could have walked out of the garden and said, you know what, folks? You're on your own. Figure this mess out for yourself. But he didn't. Because as Isaiah 53, 7 predicted, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. A little later, was taken from that garden of Gethsemane and beaten, scourged, spat upon, humiliated, hung on a cross to die, where he was abandoned by his closest friends, and not only that, but for the first time in all of eternity from God the Father, Because while he was there on that cross, he not only bore the guilt of the full weight of our sin, but on top of all of that, he bore the full wrath of God in our place as payment. And he agreed to do it. He he did it willingly. Nevertheless, he said, not my will, but yours be done. So when the Bible says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls and brothers and sisters here's why all of that matters to you and me this morning it's not just a good story simple answer is it's why the fierce anger and wrath of god hasn't fallen on you and me instead and if you're in christ it never will because it fell on christ in my place and in yours now, for the unbeliever, the answer is not quite so so pleasant. For you, the truth is, for the unbeliever, the wrath of God still looms over you. And if you were to die today without Christ, you would pay for that sin that you've committed. Uh, you'd pay that punishment for yourself completely on your own. Because, brothers and sisters, the truth is that every sin will ultimately pay be paid for. Either by the sinner in hell or by Christ on the cross. But, but if you're here... And if you can still hear this message, there's still hope for you. There's hope in the upside down economy of God's kingdom that promises to all who repent and believe that, as the Bible says, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it all away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. And just just kind of as a a tidy little way to sum this up in a little bit of time I have left, I want to close with a a short poem. It's a prayer, actually, written by one of our Puritan ancestors who who meditated on these kind of thoughts, on these issues long and hard. This is how it starts out. He wrote... Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul. To have nothing is to possess all. To bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. And Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness. My life in thy depth. My joy in thy sorrow. my grace, Thy grace in my sin. Thy riches in my poverty. Thy glory in my valley. Thy salvation in the winter's cup. Drained of wrath by you, Jesus. But filled with righteousness and hope for me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. Who is willing to live and to die that we might have a a new and and everlasting covenant with you, Lord, a covenant that allows us to come right into your throne of grace. Uh, And so, Father, we ask that you would take that message, and if there's even one here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that you would surprise them, Lord, by the power of your presence and by your holiness, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, that they would come to know you, Lord. Uh, And for those of us that believe, we ask you, Lord, to send us out with this message this week. Uh, Send us out, Lord, to share it with everyone you bring us into contact with uh, and continue to write your words upon our hearts. And we thank you for all that you're about to do in and through us. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.